how the first night she had told her friend she was going to commit suicide. And her friend pled with her to come to service that evening. They had a guest speaker and said, just never know God will speak to you or something. And she told her friend, I'll come, but still later on that night, I'm going to take my life. Well, that evening, she gave her heart to the Lord. God's word really touched her. And uh, she was giving me that testimony the the second night. But, you know, if you really think about it, just a, a little 65 minute message was able to just reorient somebody's life. You know, a person that was ready to take their life because they had no hope they believed. And then God turned it all around. So that was a lovely, lovely, lovely thing. And so here we are Tuesday night, ready to fellowship again. And I'm glad we get a chance to get into the word. You probably already smell the coffee. And so that means I've got to be very short with what I'm teaching on tonight. Very, very short. But praise God. Come on, let's open up our Bibles this evening. Let's go to Mark chapter 12. The gospel of Mark chapter 12, and I want to teach the parable of the vineyard. Mark 12, beginning with verse 1, and he began to speak to them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it. He dug a place for the wine fat and built a tower and rented it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season, he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. So if you come down a little bit further, you can see in verse 12, they sought to lay hold on Jesus, but feared the people for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them and they left him and went their way. So, Father, for the next few moments as we look into this, we ask you to speak to all of our hearts. We, we love you, we honor you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In this chapter, you have several different groups of people that are giving Jesus problems. The first group called the Herodians. They are people that are allied with Herod, big supporters of the king. Then there were the Pharisees a organization made up of men who followed the traditions of the elders and did everything they could to hold on to these beliefs. And they honestly revered these beliefs as one would the Bible. Then there were the Sadducees. These were the folks who had been appointed by the Roman authorities to oversee the temple. And these positions basically were paid and the Roman authorities paid them good money to make sure that everything operated the way Rome wanted it to operate. And then there were the scribes, the professional copyists who spent long hours copying every Hebrew letter on different types of writing materials so that they could be duplicated. And this and uh, the result of that is when Jesus stood up in the uh, synagogue one day and read from the book of Isaiah, he was reading from a scroll that likely had been copied by a scribe. These individuals did not like Jesus, and they were constantly trying to trick him and catch him in his wording. They listened to everything that he said, and if they could twist it or they could find error, that's what they looked for. But Jesus says, it says here in verse one, that he spoke to them in parables. 
Now we know from Matthew 13, the reason he spoke in parables was because he didn't want to speak clearly to people who were outside the kingdom. He told the children of Israel, who were his disciples particularly, that it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But for the people on the outside, he did not want them to understand it so clear. So a parable then is like an allegory or it's filled with analogy and it contains more than one particular truth. Normally it can say several things at the same time. And the reason that Jesus used parables is because he could tell a story and oftentimes say things in an indirect way that still would bring conviction to people. If any of you have ever read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that long book is like a parable. The story of Christian making his way to the celestial city and all of the obstacles and all of the people that he had to face along the way. So Jesus then, in continuing the thought of baffling all of these leaders who wanted to know where his power and authority came from, he told them about a man that planted a vineyard. Of course, a vineyard is where you cultivate grapes. And if a man took the time to plant a vineyard, then you know he had to be the kind of person who was patient. It takes three to four years for a vineyard to produce but it takes a whole lot of work to plan it and get everything set up so that it will be able to produce. And when it says it put a hedge about it, that hedge is talking about some kind of fence. And a lot of times they'd run those vines along the fence so that the grapes would then flourish on the fence. But the fence was also there to protect all of those crops from foxes and other kind of animals and thieves that might try to come in. The wine fat or wine press was a vat to catch the juices from the grapes that would be trampled. Now, all around the Middle East and South America and parts of Asia, you'll still find these kinds of things where a person will have a, you know, a grape stomp. They'll have a, a day where they'll put a whole lot of grapes in some particular bucket or something like that. They certainly still do it in Napa Valley in California. And you have people that'll be out there treading out the grapes. And of course, they're going to do something with the juices. Well, in ancient times, you had a depressed place or an elevated place. And once they stamped or tramped down all the grapes, then the juices ran down into a vat and they collected that. And that's what they're going to make their grape juices with. That's what they're going to make their wines with and whatever else they're going to use. So it was something everybody got involved with. As a side note, if by chance I ever go anywhere and someone has grapes and I see you folks stepping on them, I can assure you I won't be tasting anything. Not the jelly, not the grape juice or anything. Okay, so a tower was also placed in the vineyard, and it was from that tower made of stone that could be anywhere from 10 to 20 feet that a person would sit and watch for intruders or uh, foxes or anything else that might try to come in there. The man had an objective, and the objective was clear. He wanted to build this vineyard 
And then he wanted to rent it out. So that tells you that he was looking for the proceeds from this to make money from this. And once he found some individuals that he thought were trustworthy, he then goes off into another location with the expectation that the agreement that has been made between the owner of the vineyard and the vine dressers is going to be kept. That is to say, they agree to work for this amount of money. They agree at harvest time to provide these particular crops. Well, come verse two, you can see that when harvest time came, that owner sent one of his employees and he wanted to receive of the fruit of his vineyard. Well, the whole point of that, again, was he he built it and had it planted because he wanted profit. It's agricultural story. And anybody out here who has a farm, they're not planting seed in the spring because they don't have anything else to do. They're looking for a harvest come fall time. And profit is what is important for an individual who owns land. Well, in verse three, it says they called him and beat him and sent him away empty. They show disrespect to the owner by disrespecting the employee. And anytime you want an owner to feel disrespect, disrespect the people that are working for him. The people who are in charge of receiving funds. And this is what we have. We now have a vineyard that's run by people who have no honor. And where there's a lack of honor, you're going to find mischief. If you find somebody who doesn't honor people in positions of authority, you're going to have rebellious attitudes. You're going to have some pretty bad behavior and conduct. If if kids uh, typically won't honor parents at home, they're probably not going to honor the teachers in school. If they're not going to honor the teachers in school, they likely won't honor the police uh, folks and other people in different places. So honor is important. And it's so important that Jesus is has told us in the Old Testament through the prophet Moses that we should honor our mom and dad that our days on earth will be pretty long. Yeah. So honor, honor is important. But these men have none. So having taken this first servant and beat him, they then said, get out of here and don't come back. Now, can you imagine how that servant felt having been mistreated like that? So look at verse four. Again, the owner sent to them another servant. And at this one, they threw rocks at him and wounded him in the head. So they had great aim. And it says they sent him away shamefully handled. So they they physically hurt him also. And you can see this thing is going from bad to worse. If I'm one of the employees, I'm wondering why should I go to this vineyard and try to receive any money? So verse number five, and again, he sent another and him, they did what? They killed. And many others beating some and killing some. Why does this owner repeatedly send his servants into harm's way in the midst of of a murderous people because when one servant comes back and he's brought back, I should say, and he's dead, then all of his fellow workers along with the owner, they've got to go through the whole process of having a funeral. 
And if you're having to stand there because the man that went to collect the proceeds from the vineyard is dead, and now you're at a second funeral, and now you're at a third funeral, why in the world would you want to go to this vineyard if you're attending all of these funerals? Well, the only reason these people could have possibly kept going was because they honored and loved the owner of the vineyard. There could be no other reason because they obviously knew that this was a murderous situation, but they had such a trust in the owner of the vineyard that they said, I'll go. And they did. And they were mistreated. So then the owner, of course, he says, I'll send my son. Now, I'm wondering why he would think they would treat his son differently. Well, because he's flesh and blood. That's why he honestly thought him being one of one of my family, they treat him different than an employee. His well beloved, they sent him last and said they'll reverence my son. But you can see in verse seven, these husbandmen said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance shall be ours. So here's the conspiracy. The owner's objective in the beginning, remember, was to plant a vineyard that produced and then a reap a profit from that and to find some trustworthy people to leave in charge of it. But he quickly saw that those who he thought were trustworthy turned out to be very dishonorable people. So that tells you that people's attitudes can change if money is involved, if real estate is involved. Now, we, we won't pick out any names or anything like like this, but you think about it. We're, again, this is an agricultural metaphor. We live out here in an ag-based society. How many times have you seen families that were somewhat tight-knit and then mom, dad, or the grandparents die, and then all of a sudden there are thousands of acres that are left behind that have to now be divided up amongst family members? And watch how character changes and changes quickly. People that you thought were nice and meek and humble become ferocious. And they're ready to fight and give all the money to the lawyers just to make sure their niece doesn't get a thing. Just to make sure a sibling doesn't get an extra dollar more than what they think they should have. The owner said, I'm going to send my son and they'll reverence him. And they conspired and said, we'll kill him. He's the heir. Sounds to me somewhat like what Joseph's brothers did to him. Yeah. Joseph had a dream. His brothers didn't like the dream. His dad didn't like the dream. Joseph was constantly telling about what his brothers were doing when they shouldn't have been doing certain things. And one day when he came from afar off, they looked, they said, here comes that dreamer. And then they conspired to put him in a pit, and then they wanted to kill him, but they ended up selling him off to Egypt. So here we have it right here. They took him and killed the son and cast him out of the vineyard. Now let's look at some other verses in the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 and... I want you to see how Jesus, with wordplay, made use of a verse out of Isaiah 5. And in verse 1, he's talking about this beloved vineyard. It's a song. And he says, my well-beloved has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. Now, notice verse 2 of Isaiah 5. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof. 
and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. So there's the image. Israel is depicted as a vineyard in this particular setting. And there are other verses in the Old Testament where this is the same also. Well, to quickly tell you that it is Israel, look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. He looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Now, God is the best farmer, the best shepherd that any universe has ever seen. There's nothing about agricultural stuff he doesn't understand. You need to cultivate grapes. He knows how to do it. If you need to get involved with with um, planting seed, he knows how to do it. But yet he said he planted the choicest vine in verse two and he expected good grapes and wild grapes came forth. Now, if bad grapes came forward for God, then what do you think will happen with us sometimes? There's a change in character. There's a change in our behavior. And the Lord was saying this about the children of Israel. They were not maintaining their relationship with God. They were not honoring their covenant with God. And even though the Lord planted them to be a noble, holy people, they turned out to be a degenerate group of people over and over again. So what did God do? God starts sending people to the vineyard to tell Israel to return. Now, how do I know that? Go to 2 Chronicles 36 now. Further back there in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles, the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. And I want you to see why the Lord had the children of Israel go into captivity. And just to set the background and context for you, God made a promise to Israel that when they went into the promised land, that they should honor him on the Sabbath day and that every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year. That means if anybody owed you something, you released them from the debt. Well, they spent some 490 years in the promised land and did their own thing. They turned the Sabbath day into a market time. They were making more money on the Sabbath day probably than any other day of the week and the Lord got angry with them and raised up the Babylonians to take them into captivity where they spent 70 years in Babylon because the Lord said, you owe me 70 Sabbaths. And that's why they ended up for 70 years in Babylon. Now notice in second Chronicles 36 and let's, let's look at Oh, let's see here. Verse number 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath for as long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill three score and 10 years. So you can see why the Lord did this because of Israel's abomination. In the parable that Jesus told, he speaks of servants that are being sent by the owner to the workers. Notice in this same chapter of 2 Chronicles 36, look at what it says in verse number 14. 
all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. So the preachers were leading them into apostasy and they were chasing behind the beliefs of other nations. Any people, any individual in covenant with God is encouraged to keep their eyes on God and never on other religions. We're Christians. God doesn't want us envying Buddhists. We're Christians. God doesn't want us imitating Hindus. And God doesn't want us taking the religious beliefs and practices of animists or people who practice witchcraft or some other faith and then bringing that into our relationship with him. So this is why it says they polluted those things and transgress. And when they did this, God reached out to them. God kept sending people to the vineyard. And in verse 15, it says he sent unto the messengers rising up be times. That means again and again, sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. I've heard plenty of times where people say, I don't like to read the Old Testament because the Old Testament is harsh. It's filled with stories that just makes God look so mean. Have you ever considered that every time God sent a prophet to Israel to tell them to repent, that that was the love of God in manifestation? And even in your own life, before you became a Christian, every time someone came and witnessed to you or told you about your behavior when it was incorrect or said to you, you should start coming to church. You should give your heart to God. You should read the Bible and you were indifferent or hostile or didn't care that that was God's finger of love reaching out to you, trying to touch you. Look at it again there in verse 15, because he had compassion on his people. There were a lot of people that irritated me when I was little, when they talked about God, but I'm glad they did. I'm glad they did. And, and as much as children don't want to have mom and dad reiterate certain things over and over again, mom and dad do it because they love them. Not because they're trying to be annoying, even if it is annoying. And I'm sure Israel didn't like it when Isaiah showed up and said to everybody, God's a holy God, you should act differently. And the Israelites didn't like it when Jeremiah went and stood in the gates of the temple and started shouting out, amend your ways. And when Ezekiel was running around uh, doing all of these prophetic depictions physically, shaving his beard, laying on one side for half a year or whatever, going through all of these motions in order to indicate to them that they were in sin. I'm sure it irritated them when Hosea went down into the red light district, got a prostitute, brought her home, having married her. And then when everybody said, what kind of a man of God are you that you would go out and get a prostitute? And he said, well, I only did it because God said this is a representation of what you folks are doing. What a rebuke. What a rebuke. But even then, God was saying to Israel, I love you. I love you. So, so every time someone has come to you and spoken to you about conduct that's unbecoming of a Christian, rather than quickly getting angry about it, you ought to find a place where you can be alone with God and say, God, thank you 
for loving me so much that you won't leave me in this condition. Yeah, that you won't leave me like that. So look at verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets. That's several things there. They mocked the messengers of God. They did that in ancient times. Do people mock preachers today? Yes. They laugh at them. They treat them as if they're disgusting individuals. Doesn't even have to just be a preacher, a witness for Jesus. Listen to some of the awful things they say on television about Christians. They make it seem like if you talk about God, if you talk about your family, if you talk about your faith in the Lord, that you're just basically the the scum of the earth. They'll mock the way Christians pray, the way Christians conduct themselves. And when it talks about they despise his words, you know they don't want to hear about what Jesus has to say today. And that's why here not too long ago over there in the EU, uh, the president of the EU told all of those nations that are included in the EU, you're going to have to be more inclusive. And if you're going to be more inclusive, here's what you're going to have to do. Stop talking about Jesus. How dare somebody who's in charge of the EU (laughs) tell the other countries you can't talk about Christ. They don't want them to talk about the very thing that is foundational to the creation of those countries. And we hear it and we see the same thing here in our nation. People despise the words of God. They don't want the Bible read. They'll have anything read but the Bible. Read the Koran. They don't mind. Give the elementary school students the names of Muslims. Nobody's going to have a fit. You go into that school and you start talking about you're going to open up that Bible during story time for the kids in kindergarten and read the scripture. You're going to have a riot on your hands. Now, it wasn't like that 40 years ago and it wasn't like that 60 years ago. When I was in kindergarten, Mrs. Harris, our kindergarten teacher, she asked us, what did you learn in Sunday school when you went yesterday? Well, of course, I didn't have anything to say because I didn't go to Sunday school. But she certainly did ask. And for you that are here that are older, I'm sure you had something similar uh, to that because you probably had teachers that were Sunday school teachers along with being teachers in the public school. But now they despise those words and it says misused his prophets. If someone would have told me five years ago that pastors would be arrested for having churches open During a so-called pandemic, I would have said, you're crazy. So they close the churches and they arrest the preachers, but then they make sure that the bars and saloons stay open so that we send the message that the bartender is more important than the pastor. See, that's the message. The misuse of the ones that proclaim God's word, the ones that echo the voice of God. And declare that voice and that message to the people, to our nation. And uh, this is what the owner of the vineyard had to deal with. He kept sending these servants into this hostile environment. And God knew that Israel's vineyard had become so infested with transgression, become a snare trap for iniquity. But yet God kept sending one prophet after another, one holy priest after another, one witness, one wise man, a woman after another to talk to these people and look how they treated them. 
you know, historically, they say Isaiah was sawn asunder. Sawn in two. That's 800 years or so before Jesus was born. And let's not forget some of the difficulties that uh, the prophets had to endure in the book of Kings because they didn't prophesy what the kings wanted to hear. Ahab and Jezebel hated Elijah because that man dared to proclaim what was true and what was of God. They hated him. Athaliah hated the prophets of God, totally opposed to him. But it never changed the fact that what God has called his children to be and to do is still relevant for us today. But if Israel is the vineyard and God is the owner and God keeps sending these people, then what did God ultimately do? He sent his son. And this is the story Jesus is telling. He came into his own and his own received him not. They didn't believe in him. Now think about that. Jesus is with the disciples on the final night and they got all of this food and they're eating. And then Jesus gets up and takes off a few of his garments he gets a, a pot of water and then he gets down and starts washing the disciples' feet. He even washes the feet of Judas, the man that's going to betray him. Now, how do you do that? How do you wash the feet of the one that you know is going to betray you? Well, that's because Jesus was a bigger man than Judas. But do you realize that with these men who had walked who knows how many miles and had come into that area and sat down. And when Jesus started washing their feet at the same time, he was cleansing his hands. That that man had humbled himself. Could you do that? Would you do that? If you knew somebody despised you, if you knew somebody didn't like you, if they were trying to undermine your authority, get you fired, cause you to lose your life, lose your marriage or whatever. Would you be able to wash a Judas's feet? Well, Jesus did. And then he sits at the table and he tells the disciple, one of you in here is going to going to turn your backs on me and get me in trouble. One of you in here is a Benedict Arnold. And of course, they're all looking around and saying, well, what in the world? Who's he talking about me? He must be talking about you. Surely not me. And as Jesus was saying that he had a piece of bread in his hand and he's getting ready to put it in this bowl and, and, and dip it. And then Judas is reaching for some bread to do the same thing. And Jesus said, the one who puts his hand in this bowl at the same time as, as, as I do, that's the one that's going to betray me. And sure enough, Judas hand was right in there. And the Lord said to Judas, what you're going to do, go and do quickly. So he gets up, he leaves, he covenants with these evil men to betray Jesus for a few pieces of silver. And the other disciples had no idea that Judas had backslid because they sat there with him every day in church and they watched him sing the same songs. They watched him go out there and pray for people. They thought he was just as fine as they were. So you do understand that from this story, as I'm telling it, people that sit next to you in church every day can backslide and you may not even know it. I'm telling you as a pastor, I know it's true because I've seen people do it. I've seen people come to church week after week and fall out of love with God. To the point that they're not even interested in God. They're just going through the motions because this is what we do. And, and God takes all of that as betrayal. You say, how can that be betrayal? Well, because publicly you put a kiss on Jesus face like Judas did in the garden, but inwardly you don't like him. And you've already made a, a promise and a covenant and agreement with flesh and others that you're not going to serve God. 
And that's what Judas did. So our Savior went through six trials. And uh, that night it was pretty horrific. He was bloodied. He was bludgeoned. He was beaten. And if you can imagine him standing before Herod and all of his soldiers, they took his garment off of him, put a, another robe on him, put a crown of thorns on his head, pushed it down, put a, a reed in his hand. Then they bowed their knee and they mocked him, as the gospel say. Then they snatched the reed out of his hand. And as the gospels depicted, they hit him over the head with it. And then the soldiers, one by one, spat on him. I don't even like the sound of somebody spitting in my vicinity. So I can't imagine a bunch of people spitting on me. And the Bible says he did not respond. Yeah, he didn't respond. And then they put what little clothing he had back on him, put a cross on his back, made him carry it outside the gates to a hill called Golgotha. Now you can go today to that hill. I've been there plenty of times. And now there's an air bus station in that area. But if you can find some old pictures from a hundred years ago or so, then you'll see that mountain really does look like a skull. You'll see eyes, nose, and the indentations that make it look like a mouth. But because of a century of erosion, you can still see the, the impress of the eyes. But the nose and the mouth, for the most part, is gone. And then the thing, that is where our Savior died, outside the vineyard. Outside of Jerusalem. On a hill between two thieves, cruelly mistreated for your sins and for mine. So when Jesus told this parable, and these folks heard that parable. Jesus was rebuking them for how they had treated past prophets. But Jesus was also given a prediction prophetically of what would happen to him at their hands. If you folks are so bad that you treat all of God's prophets that way. I can already see where I'm going. And that's what happened. And, and, and he died. And it was it was pretty, pretty bad. But let's think about it this way now. When Jesus says in verse number 10, haven't you read the scripture that the stone that was rejected has now become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. He was showing that even though he is to be rejected, one day he'll be valued. He'll be important. Well, Jesus is no longer here in the flesh. But God's son is still here in the earth going throughout the vineyard talking to people. It's still a hostile environment. You say, how can you say that? Well, let, let's not forget now. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are what? The branches. See, abide in me. What are we talking about? Vines, vine dressers, husbandmen, a vineyard. He says, I have ordained you that you bear much fruit. If we're the vineyard, then 
Ben, how is it that the, the, the vineyard is producing so much degeneration? Jesus said, let the wheat and the tares grow together. In every church, in every vineyard, you've got good grapes and bad grapes. You've got people that love God and people that don't love God as much. You have folks that are spiritual. You have people that are carnal, people that are mature, others that are babes. Nevertheless, the sun is still here on planet Earth through us, the body of Christ. He's the head. We're the body. We comprise the sun. So through you, as I've told you before, God is able or Christ is able to sweep the floor in a school, drive a taxi in the city. Through you, he's able to stand in front of kids in a classroom or at home, be a banker, a lawyer. Through you, Jesus is able to reach people that are all over this planet doing whatever, see, in sports, flying an airplane, somebody who, who's a homemaker at home, whatever vocation it may possibly be, Jesus has his people that are there trying to reach out to them, but it's still a hostile environment because everybody doesn't want to hear about Jesus. God made this earth, and having made this earth, he put mankind on it. Mankind in the beginning knew that God made this earth, but within a few short generations, man had walked away from any covenant with God, totally turned his back on God and started abusing the, the truths of God's word and started turning their back on the promises that God had made toward us, to us. And this is why the persecution begins with Cain and Abel. Cain's jealous. And when the Lord says, Cain, where's your brother? He said, look, am I my brother's keeper? He can do his own thing. Why do I have to be in charge of him? And that's the attitude of people when it comes to the things of God. But nevertheless, with everything taking place on this earth, even in this hostile environment, God is still sending his messengers amongst murderous people. Now, we, we, we live in a pretty good day right now here in the United States of America. But can you imagine 150 years ago reading the end of Matthew or the end of Mark and where it says go into all the world then suddenly the spirit of God convicts your heart and you you come to the understanding that you're supposed to go and then God makes it known to you that you are called to go to people who are cannibals. A lot of people who did go. A lot of people who died because they were obeying God. Why would God tell someone's son or someone's daughter to go to cannibals? Because that's God's finger of compassion, trying to reach out to a people that don't know the truth. That's why. I've had plenty of people say to me, I, I don't understand why you do all this traveling, why you and your wife have to go to foreign countries. I mean, you got people here in America that, that need Jesus. Why in the world you have to go overseas? Well, you don't understand. You can't relate to it because God hadn't put it in your heart. But if he ever puts it in your heart, then you don't have a choice but to obey what, what God is saying. And if you have a cousin, a niece, a nephew, a grandchild that says, I feel compelled to go to Northwest Africa, Morocco, Mauritania, 
And then you immediately start thinking about how bad and how dangerous it is there. And I don't want them to go. And you're weeping and you're crying and your tears may very well prevent them from going or slow them down from going. But remember, God loves the people in Morocco and Mauritania, and it could very well be your grandchild that he's going to use to reach them. This is compassion. And this is what we, we, we tend to to lose sight on. We said, well, if God's going to send somebody, why can't he send somebody else's kid? <laughs> Don't you love that? Send somebody else's grandchild. Why has it got to be mine? Send somebody else's husband. Why does my mine have to go? Because that's the one God's talking to. And the reason so many people have gone in missions overseas and in evangelistic endeavors here in America is because they trust their father. They trust the owner of the vineyard. When someone packs up and leaves the big city to head to the Appalachian Mountains, where you got people that's making moonshine out in the woods, where illiteracy is strong and in multiplication, and where you have inbred relations that are deep, and yet somebody says, I feel compelled to leave rural America or to leave the big city to go and be a teacher to these students. How can we tell somebody not to go when God is trying to reach out and say to another generation, I love you. And the only way he can do that is through people who go. Yeah. Important. <clears throat> when I went to. Uh. Central Asia three years ago and I went to a prayer international prayer service there had to be over a thousand people there I would think and there wasn't even any preaching they just had different people from different countries come up share testimonies from their country and then they would pray and so I had the little microphone things, earpieces in my ears so somebody could translate and tell me what was being said and what was going on and it was just I mean, just tearing at my heart, listening to these people from Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, parts of Russia, who are talking about how their grandparents were imprisoned back in the 1920s because of the gospel. Some of them died because of the gospel, how some of them had left Russia to go to Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or wherever they went. And, and I kept thinking, God has been talking to all these different people all around planet Earth for centuries, sending them to all these different places like chess pieces being moved around on the board. And we can't even see the end game. I mean, we think we can see 20 moves ahead. but I'm telling you, God can see a thousand years ahead. And it takes his wisdom to put all these different people in place. Why China? Why would God send people from Korea to China? Why send someone from Africa to China? Why send people from Brazil over into Europe? And why are there so many people coming from foreign countries to reach America now, seeing America as a mission field? Some people get upset. I'm telling you, that's God's finger saying to these different countries, I love you folks. I don't want to leave you in the condition that you are, especially if somebody feels compelled to preach the gospel and tell folks about the king. In China, I think I mentioned it on Sunday, in China, most people don't even realize it is against the law to teach religion to children. You're not even allowed to hear about it until you're 18. 
And even then, they don't want you to learn about Christianity. So they'll line the kids up in elementary school and ask them, does your mom and dad talk to you about religion at home? So the Christian kids have to be taught, don't ever mention publicly that you have a Bible or that we sing songs about Jesus. Once the kids say in school that their parents are teaching them about Islam or Christianity or anything, according to Chinese law, you lose parental rights. Think about that. Telling your kid about Jesus and then you lose your child. Your child won't even come home from school and you may not even be told where the kid is. Other than being told that you taught him Jesus and so now you're not going to see the kid again. Well, that's, that's a difficult uh, situation. But, but even when I go back and I think of so many missionary stories I read of uh, Protestants who tried to go into Central Africa and open it up. East Africa, open it up into parts of Central America and South America and open it up. And the, the difficulties they face from the Roman Catholics, burning villages down, burning Protestant churches down. Harsh. When ISIS attacked all of those people who were Christian during their reign of terror for four or five years, they tell of how the Christians were being crucified in the town square with hundreds of people standing out there. But yet in those cities, you still had American workers, European workers, Australian workers who would not leave the area because they felt called by God to be there to be a witness, even though they had another job, might have been working for the United Nations or some other uh, group. But ladies that were brutally beaten, Raped because of Jesus. And, and the family stands back and says, I can't understand why, <clears throat> why they went. Because the father sees a harvest that he wants from the vineyard. It says in the book of James that the Lord is patiently waiting for the harvest to come. The Oral Roberts graduate some years ago who went to that little island, <clears throat> I think it was off the coast of India or somewhere, maybe Indonesia, but but he, he, he had found out about these people, went to that country, took a boat, paid somebody to take them so far. And then from that little boat, then he took a little canoe, got to this island filled with people that didn't know any English, filled with people who had their own private religion. The government wouldn't even go there. And they got videos showing that when the helicopters would come near, these people would shoot bow and arrows at the helicopter because anybody that landed on the island, they killed. But this young man was a graduate of a Bible school. He goes there and he comes with gifts, but he can't communicate with them. They don't know anything about who he is. And with bows and arrows, they shot him dead and left his body there on the shore. Now, other people ask, I don't understand why God would send people to tell people about Jesus like that. The same reason the owner kept sending the servants to the vineyard. He wants a profit from the harvest. The same reason the father kept sending people into Israel. He wants to see his people change. And this is why Jesus has compelled us to go into all the world and tell people about the king. This is what we're all called to do. This isn't about a preacher. 
This is about a witness, about a last day harvest of us sharing with people the good news of Jesus Christ. It's important to know that. Now, Saturday night, we've got Chris Michelson that'll be over at the Red Cloud Church, and we've got a missions rally over there, and he'll share a little bit about what he's doing around the world. But that's on Saturday night and starts at 6 if you want to come. But, but here's the thing. Whether you do or don't, we're all called to missions. Every one of us. If you don't go, you send. If you don't go or send, you're still to pray. But I promise you, if you're praying, you're going to go or send. Because it's hard to pray and have a heart for the harvest of God without wanting to go or wanting to send others to go. But thank the Lord for the parable of the vineyard and for what we can learn from that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Your word is true. It ministers to us powerfully. And we really do need you to continue to speak to all of our hearts. There's an earnestness in us knowing these are the last days. We want to be able to tell men and women about Christ. So, Lord, use us. Help us to trust you, rely upon you every single day as we tell people the story of the cross of Jesus Christ. We honor you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.